Mental health is a rising issue in pediatric services, especially in rural areas where access to specialized psychiatric help is already limited. With the growing need for qualified mental health services, the shortage of psychiatric healthcare professionals becomes all the more relevant. So, how do healthcare organizations support the psychiatric needs of their pediatric patients? With holistic psychiatric care, creative collaboration within healthcare, and the enduring passion of mental health professionals. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 134 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. All right, Rachel, I'm excited because today our guest is an expert in pediatric mental health services and has continued to provide that strategic psychiatric care through the latest industry shortages, which we know uh, are happening across the country. I'm going to talk about Mm -hmm. a little bit what's happening here, even in Michigan and Hillsdale County, um, lack of access, uh, creating bottlenecks, creating, uh, unfortunately, situations where our patients young, very, very young patients boarded in emergency departments for weeks on end. It's very, very concerning what's happening across this country. We're going to talk about that today. I'm excited to talk about access issues, um, and we're going to talk about pediatric mental health uh, and the challenges that we are facing across the country uh, here with this particular situation. And so I'm excited today uh, because this, as you know, Rachel, is a passion of mine, uh, you know, having formed way, way, way in advance uh, a vision for mental health and looking at what we could do to build a mental health institution, which we did as a hospital. One of the regrets I have is that we didn't look at, um, you know, the adolescent looking at that PEDS uh, piece of it, but it was very challenging at the time. Um, But now we as a state of Michigan are suffering with a lack of access and a population that are being grossly underserved. I do look forward to speaking about that today and what communities like Hillsdale can do for those that are listening nationally. Uh, This is plaguing communities throughout the country. Um, What can you do? And we're going to have an expert today to talk a little bit about that. That's right. We are talking with someone who works on the front lines uh, now of pediatric mental health and actually has previously in her career. So now more in a specialty setting. Um, but before that, in a just a pediatric uh, primary care setting. So this is a dear friend of mine. I'm very excited that we have her on the podcast today because this is someone who has really truly made strategic decisions in her career, specifically based on her passion for the mental health challenges she was seeing with her patients prior to moving into this as a specialty area. Um, So I'm very excited for you to introduce our guest, JJ. All right. Our guest today is Brittany Brannon, nurse practitioner and pediatric mental health specialist. And that is, uh, that's quite a designation, which we're going to talk about how you get certified in that area and specialize in that area. Uh, Viking Psychiatry. uh, And uh, we want to welcome you for the first time uh, to Rural Health Rising. We, we anticipate that this will be uh, many, many conversations into the future. But welcome for your first time to Rural Health Rising. Thank you so much, JJ. I'm super excited to be here. And thanks, Rachel, too. Um, yeah, I'm super excited to chat, chat with you guys. It's uh, your podcast and your mission with r- rural health. It's it's near and dear to my heart as well. And you guys are just, you've been trailblazers with this and you're navigating uncharted waters. And I'm just super excited to chat with you guys. So thanks for having me. 
Well, I think you're navigating some yeah. what feels like uncharted That's waters. They're true. charted, but not by very many people. Yeah. So right. it might as well be uncharted waters, right? Yeah. Um, so, Brittany, to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work in pediatric mental health now at Viking Psychiatry? Yeah. So I actually, I'm a registered nurse. I'm a licensed registered nurse and an advanced practice nurse in um, the state of Indiana. And I celebrated my 13th year of nursing this summer. Um, I Congratulations. Up, yeah, thank you. Yep. I grew up in a, in a rural community in Northeast Indiana. Um, and I started working, you know, as a nurse in the large health systems in Fort Wayne, really. Um, but in uh, 2013, I took a job working at a rural independent hospital that was, uh, you know, the Northeast Indiana area as a weekend bailer, a bailer, which most people probably don't even know what that means anymore. And all <laughs> our baby nurses that are graduating don't even know what that means, probably. Um, but back in the day, we were paid um, to work weekends only, which was a great gig there. Um, and I loved my time time at the, at the, that hospital. Um, uh, and it's where I really fell in love with rural health, truly. Um, so I obtained my, my master's degree in nursing in 2017, um, with encouragement from a lot of my providers and physicians that were, you know, at my rural community hospital, um, to be able to bring that back to, um, them and uh, and provide care as a nurse practitioner uh, to help kind of fill the void, which we are having a lot of issues with replacing, you know, um, retiring physicians and things like that. So um, they helped me and were very supportive of me going back to school, um, which was awesome. So I uh, was able to finish up my nurse practitioner degree and pass boards in 2017. And so I am a family nurse practitioner that's board certified through the ANCC, the American Nurses Credentialing Center. Um, and then this last year, I decided to go back and do some more continuing education um, and then pass an additional certification for my pediatric mental health specialty um, certificate through the PNCB, who credentials pediatric nurse practitioners. Um, and so then um, in 2017, after I graduated, I started working pediatric primary care uh, in my office at the, nice. yep, the rural health setting that I was at. And um, I did that until the summer, which is when I decided to make the full switch to Viking psychiatry and to do pediatric mental health more consistently and, and full-time. So can you talk to us a little bit about Viking Psych, you know, what, yeah. what, what exactly, is this a private group? Are you serving, you know, what, what jurisdiction, what area? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So Viking Psychiatry is in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's Northwest Fort Wayne. Um, and it is a small private uh, psych, psych, um, group that is myself and one other nurse practitioner. So I uh, treat pediatric clients. Uh, my partner is an adult nurse practitioner, uh, adult psychiatric NP. Um, and we are, like I said, independent. We have a psychiatrist that is our collaborator. Um, but for the most part, our, our day-to-day in our office is, uh, is us too. So that is great. That is yeah. great. Certainly a significant need for for this in communities. Um, and just a point of reference for our listeners, uh, is Indiana, can you practice at the top of your license? Uh, how does that work with your collaborative and supervision in the state yeah. of Michigan, or Indiana? Yeah, yep. So Indiana is what we would call, uh, in uh, nurse practitioners would call a yellow 
state, right? That we are um, somewhat restricted, not overly in like the red restricted, but I have what's called a collaborative agreement with um, a practicing physician in my specialty. Um, And that collaborative agreement is basically that I have a certain number. So the number is 5% in the state of Indiana, 5% of my medical prescribing um, of medication reviewed by my collaborator who he reviews my charts and, um, signs off on those. So, okay, um, yeah, so I can practice at the top of my scope as long as with a collaborative physician. Sure. Sure. So, sure. Similar to, similar to Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very similar. Correct. Well, great. Well, you know, it's, it's great to, to learn of your background and to hear of the great things that you're doing. So now that we've established who you are, what you do, your background, uh, we, we want to start with a question we ask of each of our guests. And it's a question that we get to know you a little bit better. Our listeners get to know you a little bit better. And it's really just a question of why, um, you know, why, why are you doing what you're doing? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the things that you do? And basically for this, episode today. What is your why? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's easy. Um, it's, it's my kids. It's your kids. It's our kids. It's all of our kids. It's the kids, um, Mm -hmm. that are just struggling right now, uh, in, in ways that I have never seen before as a nurse in 13 years. And, um, I, I started, you know, when I was young, from the time I was in school age, I remember wanting to be, I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to be a teacher or, you know, a nurse, or, um, I wanted to have a daycare or, right. And so I always knew that I wanted to work with kids. That was always something that I definitely knew. And I knew I was drawn to, and kids just for whatever reason, also love to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so it's always worked out, right? But yeah. um, I do too. What does that say about me? I don't know. Oh, that's because <laughs> we are young uh, at heart. You're a kid at heart. Um, but I made a, a promise to myself when I was much younger, you know, um, through life's journeys, right? To just try to always be the adult that I needed as a child. Um, and that's something that has always been um, I mean, it's something I say to myself daily, right? Why are you doing this? Oh yeah, that's why I keep going. Right. Um, and frankly, the landscape that I found myself in, in, in pediatric primary care post COVID, um, with so many, so many people struggling. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, it just, it sent me in, into kind of a tailspin and a panic of like, we have to find knowledge. We have to find resources. We have to find support. We have to do this. It has to happen. Um, and so here we are. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So that's a perfect segue into a question that I want our listeners to be able to hear is, you know, you started your nurse practitioner career primarily in pediatric primary care. Um, but then, as you said, just in the last year, you've transitioned directly into psychiatry. But it's not that you weren't exposed to, you know, providing. It's not that you weren't providing any mental health care when you were on the primary care side. But what led you to that transition ultimately? Yeah. So um, I always knew um, as a nurse practitioner and even as a nurse, you know, working in the ER and things when we would have difficult situations arise, I knew that there was a lack of resources um, for mental health. And Mm -hmm. I knew very much so that that affected our children even in greater, in greater fashion. Yes. Um, Yes. And um, so in my office, I saw a shift happen very organically, actually, and very just kind of naturally and not anything that I planned. Um, But I don't know how, I honestly do not know how it it really took off. But I think the only thing I can figure is somebody's, you know, brother's, sister's, uncle's best friend on Facebook, 
you know, told someone that they're, they were able to find help for their child's mental health uh, in mm-hmm. rural DeKalb County with me. <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, all of a sudden, uh, post-COVID, instead of having all of the ear infections and strep throat infections or, you know, wellness visits with shots, and I was having a lot of um, new establishing patients that would come in for, you know, uh, to establish care as a well child. And all of a sudden, oh, hey, by the way, right, we um, also have been cutting or are suicidal or are refusing to go to school in the morning or, and that's really why you're here because we wanted to establish with you because they, we've heard you could help us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my practice shifted in that way after COVID that just slowly instead of wellnesses or streps or, or ear, inth- ear infections or colds or, you know, those types of things, I just naturally shifted toward all mm-hmm. of the kids coming in with anxiety or depression or other concerns with their mental health. And, um, it got to the point where I, I went, you know, to leadership, right. To say like, listen, I can't keep doing pediatric psych on a, on a pediatric mental health schedule because it's just not enough time for these kids. They need more time. Um, and that was when things really shifted for me. And I, I realized, Hey, maybe, you know, doing what you're doing in the primary care setting isn't the best fit. Um, and so it shifted and, and a Viking psychiatry found me, <laughs> Um, and, uh, it was, it just was, like I said, a very natural kind of organic shift for me. So, yeah, that's great. You know, so in your work, you're obviously in a position that you see the ebb and flow, uh, the high, the low points, uh, as it relates to pediatric, uh, mental health needs and subsequently services. So I guess for our listeners, for me, um, how have the needs and available services, uh, changed for better or worse, uh, throughout your career for this population? How, how would you assess that environment, you know, let's say maybe five years ago, assess it as a comparison to today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So five years ago, there definitely wasn't this um, panic surrounding, um, I feel, you know, mental health. And maybe it, there maybe there, there, there was on, you know, situational basis, right? Um, but it wasn't like the broad panic of we have a huge problem and and no resources. Um, five years ago, I feel like I could kind of I could kind of uh, navigate that a little easier as far as finding counselors or um, mm-hmm. finding medical management for these kiddos um, because you know it, there wasn't not not there wasn't such so many phone calls being made to these professionals you know daily mm-hmm. that we could get kids in. Um, it didn't seem as emergent, let's say that five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I would say, for me personally, that it really highlighted the shift through through COVID, um, and and after COVID, when we opened back up and after lockdown and things like that, um, and that's when I really felt that lack of resources with regard to mental health for me personally. Before it was a struggle, you know, off and on, especially, um, but then after that happened, it there was it was a constant struggle, a constant mm-hmm. fight. Um, to find what these kids needed. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I equate it to after, you know, with, with COVID, we, we didn't know what to expect and we weren't prepared initially with things like PPE and all of those good things. And, and we didn't know. And the same thing kind of, you know, for the aftermath of COVID is we're not prepared, um, 
you know, to, to help these kids now with this medical and social anxiety that we've kind of instilled um, into them. And, you know, treatment is expensive. Treatment is not, it's not, um, a lot of times testing and things like that aren't covered by insurances, um, which is also a big point of frustration. And so um, there's a lot of red tape when it comes to those things, as well as not enough, you know, pr- professionals trained. Um, and so it's, it's definitely seeing the the current ebb and flow uh, is mm-hmm. in kind of a, a panic, right, of, of yeah. trying to come up with resources. You know, Brittany, we had a uh, Supreme Court justice from Michigan on our podcast not too long ago. Yeah. Uh, he's, bl- he's blind. Mm-hmm. And uh, he shared with us the impact of COVID and the shutdown on him uh, with his needs and the inability to connect with people. Right. And and what we witnessed during COVID was, you know, our school systems locked down. Uh, schools went mm-hmm. virtual. Uh, kids that were already suffering didn't have access to counselors at school anymore. Uh, the access, you know, home lives uh, in some places, very deplorable. And and, you know, their only saving grace at times was uh, the getaway that they would get from school. Uh, and the ability to talk with counselors. Um, post-pandemic, you know, we're still we're still coming out of this, right? It's not like it's it's it's. I guess give us the assessment of post-pandemic what we've experienced with um, a time and a period of well over a year in which kids were siloed, weren't allowed to really get out of their homes, lacked the financial and social resources to get to counseling. Uh, and now you're dealing with this, right? You're seeing, you know, and, and I, I would I would submit to you that, you know, we can do the uh, needs assessment, you know, we can do uh, the threat assessments uh, in our pediatric offices and really look at, you know, social determinants of health and, you know, what's been impacted by that, lack of food, lack of transportation, housing. Um, but, you know, the pandemic really intensified what a problem we already experienced. What what are you seeing, I guess, as some strategies to get these children, these kids out of that that pandemic era of, you know, what they missed in a year, someone described to us as a lifetime? So I have always had a high, I think, um, number of adolescent clients, right? Um, we know adolescence comes with its own mental health concerns and struggles for lots of different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what really shocked me was the number of very small children that then mm. after we opened back up and kids went back to school after that period of shutdown in that year, um, yeah. I have never seen the level of anxiety right. in right. little children as as I did in that point. Um, I think that the COVID shutdown clearly made our children it, – it, it traumatized them. Yeah. And truly it did. They, they don't, they didn't even understand fully the emotional no. and, and they couldn't work through any of that either. No. Um, but like my own son, so he's 10 the other night we were laying in bed and I was, I sometimes at night I lay with him and just, you know, tell me about, let's talk a little bit. Let me just keep me yeah. refilled in on your, on your day and your life. And, um, and he mentioned to me, he goes, mom, how come you never told me that, um, that you could have been like, you could have not been able to come home during the COVID pandemic. And I said, honey, what do you mean? And he said, mom, you know, I always wondered, I asked dad the other day, I said, dad, when we, when the COVID pandemic happened, you were gone every day and daddy was at home with us every day doing school. Right. Um, And he said, I asked dad, why, why was, why was dad home? Why were you home? But not mom, mom was never home. 
right? And it, that was the first point of realization for my son that he heard my husband say, well, mommy still had to go to work, babe, because there was a pandemic and there were people sick, right? Yeah. And people still getting sick. Um, yeah. But we weren't sure if mom was going to need to go to the hospital or, you know, to have right. to fill in in the lines of our mm-hmm. pl- our planning for the pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, and that, like, I didn't realize, but that hit him. And, and my husband at the, at the time said, I didn't even, it was just like a nonchalant conversation, but he had thought about it for a whole week. And then in bed asked me, mom, how come yeah. you never told me how serious that was? Yeah. A year and a half later. Yes. It's, yes. it's still on his mind. It's still yes. on his mind. Yes. And yeah. he's like, how come I didn't realize that that was so scary for you, mom? I'm yeah. so sorry that I didn't know. And I'm like, you are 10, right? We yeah. wanted you to not have to be. So <laughs> yeah. our kids, they being at home, they were told, stay home, keep your doors closed, right? Right. Go outside and play with your friends even outside because they could have an illness and we don't yep. want that illness, right? Yep. Um, and that's what they heard. And in their mind now, that social anxiety that ensues after that, every person looks like someone that could potentially hurt them, right? With an illness Mm. or a virus that they could potentially be carrying. And we don't know if they have it. Yeah. And in a small child's mind, the way that they work through this, it's, it is, it's, that's traumatizing. Traumatizing. Human, as humans, as pack animals, we are pack animals, right? We're separated from all but our, our immediate packs for so long. Mm -hmm. And then when we put a small child that has a trouble putting all of that together, right? Um, back out in the world, it's scary. It's scary. And then let's throw them in at school. Yep. Let's throw them in at school where they have lots of work and lots of expectations and lots of other stress. Yeah, And we're going to create kiddos. I've seen so many kiddos, you know, OCD. We're worried. I have, a, a, you know, specific sh- children that they have triggers in every single classroom of germs or, or yeah. types of things, right? Um, yeah. They mm. also don't know how to socialize with peers. And that brings so much anxiety as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm seeing this younger and younger and younger, and I have never encountered a situation in, in the, my years of practice where right. I have so many parents coming to me begging, I can't get my kid out of the car in the morning at car line at school to go to school. Right. I can't get my kid to sleep in their own bed and they're 10. Um, mm. you know, I've had the, and that, so those types of things were just kind of where we were headed. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what I really have noticed kind of the, the changes. Coming out of it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate your perspective. Yeah. That's uh, very enlightening. Well, and the interesting thing about it too is that we know that there are adults who are struggling yeah. with mental health and with similar issues yeah. as a result of the pandemic. And I've even told people before, you know, I was pregnant yep. in the pandemic um, with my son. And so I don't think I went, I don't think I physically myself went to the grocery store for a year uh-huh. yeah. because well, my husband would always go right. because I was at higher risk of catching anything. And I already was working in a healthcare setting. Yeah. I wasn't often in the hospital. I spent most of my time in our administration building, but still there's always higher risk. Right. Sure. And I even remember the first time I went back to the grocery store after all of that, I was like, why do I feel uncomfortable because right you're, now? Who could be sick? Is somebody sick around me? Yeah. And it just, and it was mm-hmm. also just a lack of having done it in so long. It almost felt like a new experience, even though it wasn't. You're so right. You know, so I can't imagine for these kids who are so young that have had so little life experience already, how much longer it would take them to readjust to a situation. I love yeah. that that you said that because I say I say that all the time that for us as adults we have a lot 
more tools in our toolbox of, of how we're handling and how we can cope through things like that are stressful. Right. Um, and more history to fall back on to say, exactly, I've been to the grocery store exactly, 800 times in my exactly life. Exactly yeah. right. This is not a big deal. Right. Yeah. But for a kid, they might've been to the grocery store yes. 12 times before exactly. that. Yeah. In my big body, that's a hard feeling. And I, I mm-hmm. always encourage parents to say, if that's a hard feeling in your big body, imagine, imagine what you're like yeah. in their seven-year-old body. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's also talk about, so we talked about pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Let's talk about urban and rural pediatric mental health services, because you were working in a more rural community um, and you were in the primary care setting, but still doing a lot of mental health work with your patients. And now you're in what I guess some would consider, I don't know if Fort Wayne's considered urban, it, it, but yeah, urban-ish, so. mm-hmm. you know, yeah, urban-ish. So um, urban, and I'm yeah. guessing you probably also still see patients who live in rural communities who yeah. are coming to you. Yeah. Um, but what unique challenges were you seeing with that rural population or maybe in that rural setting compared to what you're seeing now in the more urban setting? Yes, yes. Very different, Rachel. Very different. Mm -hmm. Um, I have so many more resources available to me in the Fort Wayne setting Mm. than I did in Mm -hmm. the rural community. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 it it made me truly, truly, moving, moving to a more suburban community has made me truly thankful for the additional resources. But it has also highlighted for me Wow, what a disparity, um, mm-hmm. you know, that we're seeing with with the opportunities available to the kiddos in the rural communities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the part of health equity that is not probably talked about often enough. It, it seems to be more and more, but the rural versus urban disparity is one of the disparities that we don't hear enough about. You are exactly right, Rachel. And I think to understand it fully, you have to have an, experienced it in both settings, truly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, my rural setting, um, in the, in the small rural community that I practice in, in, in primary care, I would be lucky. I, I, I think I came up with data one time on the, my last 11 days in the office. Um, the last 11 days I had diagnosed a mental health condition, I believe, and I'm, I believe, I think it was like 38, 38 different diagnoses in that 11 days that I had attributed to different patients, some with more than one maybe, right? But like different mental health diagnoses. Um, And I gave, uh, I had given this data, you know, to, to my system because I said, listen, of all of these, these 11 days and 38 small children or 38 diagnoses, right? Um, I have two of those kids with a counselor and one of them just had an intake with a counselor last week. Wow. Wow. So how we cannot, we cannot combat a mental health crisis without skills. We cannot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say that to, to patients and clients, uh, parents all the time, you know, that I can, yes, Mm -hmm. here to talk medical management and how I can help assist with your healing, with the medical piece, right? That may include medication, but I cannot replace skills. I need pills and skills is what I tell them all the time. There's no Mm -hmm. magic Mm -hmm. pill, right? Um, Not just one strategy. No. It's got to be holistic. Yes, it is. It is. It has to be holistic. And, Mm -hmm. and in the same way, you know, pills are in our toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But they are not magic, and, um, and I, I tell kids in my office, listen, you know, I equate medication that we use for mental health in children to kind of be similar to like, let's say if you broke your ankle 
and you had to have surgery to fix it. All right. Let's mm-hmm. say you, you had a bad fracture and you had surgery to fix it and they set your ankle and you had surgery. And then the next week you had to head into physical therapy. Most people think, right, that that surgery and that actual fracture is the most horrible part of that whole thing. And I disagree as a nurse who has seen, you know, healing in many different avenues. Um, I believe that the recovery is the worst part, right? When you're, you have a big bulky cast on, you don't want to go to therapy. You don't want to rehab that ankle. You don't want to, it hurts. It's not fun, but we have to ask you to accept maybe just a little bit of discomfort, right? In the name of healing to, to get yourself better. And I tell kids the same thing with medication, you know, in, in pediatric mental health, this is like a Tylenol or ibuprofen, right? That says, Hey, we're going to do some hard work, but we're going to, when we want to take the edge off of that for you, right. Um, and give you some skills and give you some tools so that you feel like more confident and more in more secure in your abilities to do hard things. But this is not a magic cure, right? Mm -hmm. This is still going to take work. So Mm -hmm. when I try to give that advice in, 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 in office, um, and which is what we've all as mental health and professionals been taught. It's, you know, not just one Avenue medicine doesn't just yeah. have to have both. Mm-hmm. Um, just like I'm, you'll never have a, a, a psychiatric practitioner tell a patient, you don't need to go to counseling. You can stop counseling now never. because yeah. we have, they'll always say, do not no. stop no. your no. counseling, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I, when I'm in the office and I'm, and I'm telling parents all these things and I'm, you know, respouting what I know to be the best way to treat this, um, mm-hmm. They don't have access to that. They have maybe a couple of counselors at Bowen Center or Northeastern Center to their to their access. You know that are that are that are maybe available in six to nine months if they're on a wait list. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is such a hopeless feeling for these people and for their parents. Um, and unfortunately, you know, here in Fort Wayne, there's I could give a. I could give a parent 700 phone numbers to call, right? Um, which seems daunting, but when your kid is struggling, parent, you do what you need to do, right? To find them mm-hmm. the help they need. Um, I have two numbers to give in my rural community, you know? Mm-hmm. And even then I have maybe therapists that are not even fully licensed or fully trained. Right, right. But mm-hmm. are trying to do the best that they can to fill this need. Um, and so I've really, it's, it's, to find kids and, and adults too, it's even is hard, but kids especially oh, yeah. are no trained, I mean, play therapy and things like that. So hard to find a very well-trained mm-hmm. therapist in those areas. Um, it's, there's not enough of us on yeah. the ground. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, let's, let's carry this out just a little bit further than, yeah. you know, we're talking about barriers and some other things. And, and obviously there are many barriers to care, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that impact us and, you know, geography, as we've just talked about, rural versus urban, access to, to centers, access to transportation, mm-hmm. you know, but when those barriers arise, it is the responsibility of healthcare organizations, just like it is Hillsdale, for me to look at our community needs assessment, to have conversations with our community leaders and say, where, where are the needs, where are the barriers? Um, and we've got to do our part as healthcare professionals to overcome those barriers as much as we can possibly do with our limited resources. So I guess my question for you is what strategies and solutions have you seen or implemented yes. uh, that have caused breakthroughs in pediatric mental health? Can you share that with us a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So the first thing, um, 
the first thing I want to highlight are my teacher friends. Oh my gosh, my teacher friends. I could not do this without them right now in this Mm -hmm. setting and in the landscape that we're in. Um, And teachers did not sign up to be mental health counselors. Yeah. (laughs) But that is the role that they are functioning in. God love them. God love Um, them. God love them mm-hmm. because yeah. it is, it's not fair, but I admire them so much. And there are really no better group of people in the world mm-hmm. that I could think of, right. That are, are better. They probably don't realize that they're, they're, you know, the best at being able to do this for our kids, mm-hmm. but they are, um, and they are doing it. They're fumbling through it. God love mm-hmm. them. But, mm-hmm. um, I think utilizing school, the the basis of pediatric medicine is we have to meet them where they are at. We have learned Mm -hmm. that time and time and time and time again for even adults, but especially with children that we have to rely on transportation and parents and parent schedules and all of those things, right? To be able to get them the care that they need. So school is the key, I feel personally, Mm -hmm. when it comes to how can we help how can we help support these kids and, and our communities? Um, they are already in school. They are already a uh, captive audience, right? And there are curriculums and things that the a lot of my teacher friends are looking at on teaching coping skills, on, on teaching um, resiliency, on, on those things. And those curriculums are so encouraging for me to see and to see mm-hmm. my friends doing and wanting to institute those types of educational opportunities for our kids is so huge. So I think I, I have to say, I do believe our teachers have, have stepped up substantially. I agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and they are true superheroes. Um, our teachers, our guidance counselors, our office personnel, I have seen everyone, everyone throw in for this, everyone. And um, in fact, I was invited by the School Nurse Association, Association in Indiana to speak at their annual conference in November. Um, nice. Yes. And I'm so, so excited to go and, and meet with them. But they are, I mean, these people have just been instrumental. So I think helping them as far as giving them tools with training, they are willing. They clearly are doing it and they are willing. They yeah. just need the tools to be able to help these kids and looking at curriculums and things like that. Um, always, uh, I think, um, when it comes to, you know, healthcare organizations and, and JJ, I respect so much that you feel a civic duty, right? As mm-hmm. your healthcare organization in your community needs to, to, to know about what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think funding truly, right. Is another yeah, huge, it is. It's it is. huge. We just don't have the funds to pay for the extra training no. um, for those individuals or for the curriculum to be instituted into maybe even a classroom setting for kiddos. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that that's, that's one of the biggest, the biggest things. So for me personally, also, as Mm -hmm. well as, um, utilizing the, the resources at school that we can maybe look into ramping or, or boosting in different ways. I think, um, utilizing a personalized medicine approach for kids is really important too. And looking at things like, um, nutrients as medication for children is uh, another piece that I feel is really something that I have made a run at um, to cause a breakthrough in pediatric mental health. That if, even if you're not, you don't have access to a counselor or a medication prescriber, or you let's talk nutrients, okay? Are you, not, no child in, in our country probably has all of those nutrients that they need. We're all you know, mm-hmm. eaters we have. And so there are definitely huge things that we can look at um, to help 
improve their overall brain function and quality of life and their 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 resiliency in their overall wellness with nutrition mm. um, and teaching that to kids as well as teaching good sleep, right? Sleep is also something that's super important and helping kids oh, understand. Huge. Yeah. Helping them. So those are things that don't require, you know, a counselor or a medical professional, but are things that are can make or break a child's overall mental health. Yeah. You know, Brittany, I want to follow up on one other thing. It's kind of going to segue uh, into something you said earlier, but uh, when we talk about access, mm-hmm. okay, so currently Hillsdale, if we want to refer someone for pediatric, mm-hmm. now you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Six to nine months. Yep. So let me ask you this question because it played a role during COVID. What are you seeing in telemedicine as it relates to your profession and what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are you engaged in any telemedicine? Do you see that as a segue for rural communities like Hillsdale for us to have access? And then beyond that, the third question is, can I sign the contract with you today? For No, uh, <laughs> I, I would happily I would happily do that if you had capacity. But we do have a capacity issue. We have an access issue in Michigan. You know, in what I'm hearing is as we go across the country and, and attend seminars and speak at seminars is that this is a, a, a national crisis. And so how has telemedicine helped or maybe it hasn't in your industry? Um, and do you see that as what, what do we see the future of that? Yeah. So I, I think my my feelings uh, toward telemedicine have evolved and they are still ever evolving, I think, and changing. Um I believe that telemedicine has a really important place in bringing access to care to places in in rural communities. I ab- I think that that is huge. And in fact, when we first after the COVID pandemic when they when we started having insurance approval to do, you know, yeah. virtual visits and be able to bill for those things, it was like, wow, this is amazing, right? Um my and I was very hopeful. I think that it can work very well when we have really good procedures in place um, and ways to be able to monitor um, kiddos in their treatment progress um, from a virtual standpoint, right? Um, I have I have some concerns with children specifically uh, in, okay. the, in the okay. virtual realm of the world in, in, in that I think that we just lack regulation for how we do that best. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and so I've just seen some things as far as like, um, you know, when kiddos can't, they don't have access to care with, with mental health and they have a virtual provider, let's say um, a physician in Florida is providing virtual care for my client in Indiana, which is happening often. Um my only problem is when we have no oversight of things like vital signs in children, right? Um, like monitoring their weight, monitoring their heights, monitoring their, you know, their blood pressure and their, their heart rate, those types of things. Um, if we have no ability to do that at all at any point in treatment, that's, I think, a concern, you know, for me. And I've seen where maybe potentially some different things have fallen through the cracks where we haven't had a face-to-face eval with a kid knowing that maybe, hey, if we put them on a medication, we need to watch really closely for any weight gain. Um, and I've seen, you know, potentially as some kiddos come in that it's like, man, you've been seeing your provider for a year. Did anyone realize that you gained 60 pounds? <laughs> on this um, right. atypical antipsychotic in that time, right? You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or has has anyone looked at 
you know, your lab work or things like that to kind of, uh, sometimes those things are the things that fall through, right? So I think that it's just a matter of having procedures in place to ensure safety as well as access, um, which is something that we're all looking at and working through because we don't know until you try, right? Until you find the, 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 the areas that it's lacking. Um, and I think I'm, I am finding some more of those. I do do some virtual visits. I, um, most of my clients actually, I, a lot of times leave it up to them to say, Hey, if you wanted to do this next follow-up virtually, we certainly could. Yeah. Um, yeah. but for the most part, my kids want to come in and see me. Mm-hmm. I would tell you it is maybe one virtual visit a day on my schedule that even oh, when wow. I give the kids, yeah, when I give them the opportunity to potentially do a virtual, um, they prefer to come in and talk to me. And I think it's different with kids. Um, a child has to earn trust in a different way than an adult does, I think. Um, and I think a, a personal element of that does help um, to to help make, you know, build yeah. that trust. Sure, um, sure. So that's, I I think it's, an, it's interesting to me to see that most of my teens even do still want to come in in person. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think that we can make a run at providing the the care virtually from a remote location if, yeah. if we have, if we can put in some good, good standards of care, I think. Yes, That's right, where right. We have not been able to build that because we didn't no, we were in an yeah. emergency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were, yeah. Well, let's build that for Hillsdale. I'll work with you on that I and you can be that. the provider. Okay. Yeah. All right. We can we can work with uh, our primary care and pediatrics. So on how we can um, yep, put but yeah, but that's the thing. Okay. It's like you you have to have that relationship with the boots on the ground provider to be able to say, Hey, we need to order labs and, and just make sure all of that exactly. happens. Because if you don't have the authority to order the labs at that facility, mm-hmm. you need who's their primary care provider that can order the labs or yeah. whatever it is, like the Florida to Indiana, for yeah. example, that you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, closer, closer state lines will probably build even better relationships and being that far apart in Indiana versus a Michigan sounds like less of a barrier, right? For yeah. sure. Um, so as we kind of start to, wrap up here which it doesn't even feel like we can do that yet it's been an hour it's hard to believe episode i know because we'll have to have you back we Um, will we definitely will but how can hospitals and other healthcare organizations partner with psychiatric practices like yours to help fill the growing needs in this area how can we stay informed and engaged um and then my other question to that too would be how can we work to develop folks like you within our own organizations that maybe in five years from now can start doing what you're doing? Um, yeah, I think you have people in your organization right now, I can guarantee it, that are ready and willing to do this. They really are. They just don't know where to start, right, to, to be the help. Um, and that was a point of frustration for me early on in my journey that when I asked, like, for, hey, I am doing this in primary care because I have to. There's no one else to do it. And someone has to. Because I can't just say, well, good luck, right? That's not in me. I can't do that to these kids. Right. Um, When I asked for, you know, additional training and things like that to help myself feel more confident in my ability to truly help the the kiddos in the way that they needed um, and things like that, uh, there isn't a lot of, of open room a lot of times, I think, for when people ask for additional training or things, or people don't know where to go for that additional training or who to, um, to look through to, to implement things like that. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, as, 
um, your with your organization finding those people that are they their pat the passion they need the passion for for this work and if you if they are mm-hmm. and I'm I'm sure you have them um, but talking to them about hey you know would you be interested in potentially doing some training on how you could work in this setting and, and do more with this um, I think you would be surprised at the number of people that would say put me in coach put me in. yeah yeah yeah. Because that's you have you have warriors that are wanting to help, and that's why they're doing what they're doing now in in yeah. your in your facility, right? Um, so I think finding and and getting um, having access to the training and allow and uh, encouraging your your employees and your providers to take part in in learning better ways or or the most current, right? So that they then have confidence to say all right, put them on, put them on my schedule and bring me, bring them in as, you know, just if they need help, bring them in. Right. Um, but I feel a lot of with providers in, in pediatric mental health, there's a lot of fear surrounding, I don't know what to even do or where to start. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so then they, they then are scared to try to help. Right. So I think getting um, that education going is really great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, like we talked about before, funding is always an issue and helping us on the ground, you know, to promote greater awareness and training within schools and childcare centers. And um, uh, that's that's a huge piece. I think being very integrated into your community, which, you know, JJ, I, I hear you, you are, you're the CEO of your hospital, correct? Yes. And you're, the fact that you care to sit down and take time to talk to me mm-hmm. about what I'm seeing and how you guys can help. I mean, you guys are, you guys are awesome. Well, we, we appreciate what you're doing because we're struggling as an industry, um, you know, for these type of services. And I would submit to you, uh, that you're doing God's work. I would also probably say that you're a person of faith. I'm going to take that gamble. Uh, and I can, I can feel your passion, um, but when we're in these remote areas like you were previously in, in serving a rural community to what we're doing here, it truly is, it's God's work. And I can, I can feel your passion and I can sense something deeper uh, inside of you, which I, I want to thank you for that and, sh- and, and shine that light bright uh, and continue to do that. Um, we are hurting as an industry for uh, this type of service. And mm-hmm. um, what's really impacted the most is that our children are suffering. And, you know, in my previous life, um, I would investigate uh, crimes and suicides and other things. And the number of children, uh, you know, that were committing suicide and just the devastation uh, that that impacts our community uh, and, and, you know, the, the families are ever dev- devastated. The school children are devastated. Uh, and a lot of that, I'm just going to be honest, goes to the fact that we, we lack the resources yeah. in rural communities for help. Right. And then there's also that bravado of, you know, I'm not going to have my child talk to someone. There's no way. I think getting there's rid of some of those stigmas, those stigmas, um, you know, yes. I I had that same, I had, I actually had written a note about talking about, you know, the mounting concerns in mental health realm and the, and that, and, but continuing the conversation, right. Alone helps that stigma. And it was my eight-year-old daughter just realized that at school, you know, that she, when she was able to be brave and say, actually, this is making me really nervous. And I have questions when she was able to to do that and go out of her comfort zone. She then had developed the entire class around her said, we're, we're really nervous about this too. And we need help. Yeah. Right. Um, So sometimes empowering others, especially kids, right. To say, this is a problem Mm -hmm. and I am not feeling okay about this. Yeah. 
it then spurs, you know, the, the, the group to say, oh my gosh, thank you for saying something. Mm-hmm. You're right. And the and influence of parents on other parents too, saying okay. we knew there was an issue. This is what we did. And yeah. this is why and then it's a community we're doing effort. better. Yes. It's a right. community yeah. effort. Yep. The, the adult stigmas have to be erased first before exactly. we can recognize any help for the children. I, I reflect on a story. My nephew was killed in the Iraq war and uh, he was young. He was 27 years of age, uh, you know, two children. And my mother, a devout Christian woman, taught Bible school, great woman, uh, was suffering, mm. significantly suffering because we had taken care of him as a, as a young boy. And I remember going home one day and my mom was just struggling. She was crying. I'm like, mom, what is it? And I said, mom, you need, you know, I'm going to get you in to talk to somebody. And she said, you know, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't have to do that. And I said, mom, let's talk about, you want to talk about this? You know, before his crucifixion, Jesus went up into the mountains and he, it was our first recorded entry of depression in the Bible. I said, he had to seek solace. He had to go and communicate and he had to get away and express himself. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how strong you think you are or what faith you think you have. It's not a weakness. And we live in a world in which, you know, historically we've said it's a weakness. But I think when we embrace the fact that we've got to do that, that we've got to go beyond ourselves, seek that help. Until we do that, you know, we're going to be victim over and over again. And our children will honestly be victim because they're going to say, well, Mm -hmm. it's sign of weakness. And I think breaking that stigma is so critical. I really do. And so, you know, faith is is what gets us through a lot. But at the end of the day, we have the greatest leader of all who said, I, I had to go to the mountain for a while to to to, to process mm-hmm. what was going on in my life. So uh, I just want to, I think if there's one message that we hear today, it's that there is help. It is available. You have to seek it out. In rural communities, you may have to look really far. Mm-hmm. Um, to mm-hmm. seek that out, but that there is help that does exist. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, there is. There is. It's just going to be, you're going to have to be dedicated to it, right? And don't give Absolutely. up. It's hard when you're feeling depressed and anxious. <laughs> yeah. But yes, stay the, stay the course. It's worth the it. Course. There is help. And there is beauty on the other side of that. There is yeah. always going to be there a always better is. There There's always going to be a better day. There always is. There's yeah. going to be a better day. And, and I think well, we already have a topic now for our next episode with Brittany. I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> we do. Yeah. I love. I love talking. But I. I. Um. I. When you were talking, JJ, there, I always tell kiddos. I always. I always try to end us. You know, our sessions with different like. If they don't have a counselor, right? I try to help find find little things that we can do, little goals yeah. that we can make each time that are going to make a, a difference, right? And. Um, some of the things that I find myself repeating over and over to kiddos are number one, the number one is you are always a survivor and you are never a victim. And don't you ever forget that. That's right. And number two, there is always opportunity in your challenge. If you don't have a challenge, you don't have an opportunity. That's right. So keep your head high. Remember opportunities and challenges hand in hand. Yep. But you are never a victim and always a survivor and keep your head up and just That's keep right. going. Brittany, thank you for your passion. Thank you for what you're doing to impact uh, rural communities and communities, you know, obviously in, in Indiana and just the impact that you're having on lives and the lives you're touching today. You have no clue what's going to happen uh, in the next five or 10 years and the impact that you've made. So thank you uh, for the work that you do and for the calling that you've answered. It's been great to have you on the podcast today. I do look forward to future episodes with you uh, as we talk about maybe access issues again and how we can build a network 
you know, people listen to this podcast across the country. Uh, it's not just about what's impacting Indiana or Michigan. We got to talk about how can we solve some of these issues uh, for the nation and, and, and regain some of that stability back. So I do look forward to your return and I want to thank you for joining us on Rural Health Rising today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I had a great, great time talking to you guys. And before we close, we love to do a fun segment with each of our guests. Uh, And since this is called Rural Health Rising, we like to talk about rural things. So I want to know, You've spent some time in rural America, the 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 fields. Grew up yeah, in rural, up worked and, in rural. You know the the beautiful flatlands of Indiana. Uh, is what is one of your <laughs> most rural uh, memories? One of your best experiences that's you know relative to rural living and rural life that someone listening today may not understand what rural is. Do you have a favorite memory or something that is indicative of rural life? I, I do. I, I, I struggled between two. I really, I struggled between two here with this piece, but, um, so the first, I grew up in a rural community, right? Um, and my first job as a 15 year old kid was working at our very small little grocery store in my community. We didn't have Walmart. We didn't have a super yeah. center. We didn't have, we had a small little grocery store that you could go to buy your groceries, right? Yep, us too. Us too. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I worked there as a cashier. Um, and, uh, like I said, I started that job when I was 15. Um, and that's actually where I met my husband when we were young. Uh, we weren't. Wait, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love it. Uh Was he a stock boy? Was he a stock boy? Yeah, he was. Exactly. Exactly. Uh The stock boy. No, he actually (laughs) worked a lot in the produce department too. He was, yes, he can mean pineapple. I'm telling you. Oh yeah. I was 15 years old, the produce manager of my grocery store. He managed the <laughs> produce right. department all I did the way. too. He, he came home from college. They didn't need anybody yep. except for the summertime because we are a lake community. Yeah. <laughs> and he yeah. would do that every summer from college. Yeah. But anyway. And me too. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that really, I mean, small grocery store, I got to see, you know, that's rural life at its finest. Um, sure is. All the characters, right? Everybody got to come from the grocery store. Oh, I loved it. Yes. And I, and you know, you gained relationships with these people. And that's oh, yeah. where I learned how to talk to people, truly, right? You know, um, but rural life at its finest there. And I got to see all those, the various characters, you know, of our small town's rural story come, you know, through the lens of my like teenage girl, <laughs> Right. Um, And I learned so much about life and our community and what different people from different walks of life can offer, truly, Mm -hmm. that you didn't even realize. Right. Um, And I just I saw the strength of a small rural community in even the players, the small characters that maybe... Um, would have never been included in, you know, our small rural story, right? But that you can see how they've built, they built our community and, and how even their, their piece is, is so important to the community structure as a whole. But it really showed me, um, you know, from the farmer that he told me, he said, you know, Brittany, I never, I never went to school past fifth grade. I'm not a smart man. But every time he would come in, he had the most amazing advice for me. Yeah, not amazing. Never, ever, 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 ever forget him. And those yeah. people that it's like, you know, for him in his mind, he said, I'm not a smart man. I only went to school fifth grade. He was one of the smartest men that ever yeah. touched my life with, you know, gaining uh, great life lessons and good little yeah. stories that were quick through the grocery checkout. 
Oh, that yeah. is real health for me. A rural community I, in that area for me. That is, that's a, that's a book title through yeah. the checkout link, through the <laughs> checkout link. I like there it. You, go. You, you could do a lot yes. with that. That is awesome. Well, listen, it's been great to have you on our podcast today. Great stories, great time of reflection. Uh, thanks for your passion and all you're doing. And we look forward to seeing you again here. Same to you, JJ. Keep up your, keep up that passion. And just, I, I really have to tell you, just you guys are doing such a great job in your little community. Um, and I just hope that you, you know, may you always just stay true to those rural roots and the human beings of your community. Thank you. We will. Thank, Thank you. you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com. 